But before we dive into this text, we definitely need to pray. Heavenly Father, we can come to your word as wonderful as it is, and apart from your spirit tuning our hearts, our minds, our souls to resonate with it, it won't land on us the way it needs to. And so we come absolutely, utterly dependent. As you speak, help our souls know that they are made to feast on your word. Help all the distractions subside. Help all of our task lists uh, be forgotten. Help all of the chores, the assignments, the projects, the travel, everything that's coming this week, whether really good, really challenging, just really busy. God, help that stuff just sit. Allow us, grant us the grace of just being present before you. Father, what every single person needs in this room more than anything else, whether this is their first Sunday ever walking into a church building, whether they've been gone from gathering with your people for 12 years, God, whether they've been a Christian for 42, God, what every single person needs most is that we would leave this place in this time more impressed with Jesus, more full of hope in all that he promises to do, more convinced in what he has already accomplished for all that trust in him. So Holy Spirit, would you lift Christ high and draw our hearts after him? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have not worked out, I have not lifted weights in like eight years. I know, shocking. Um, I used to, used to enjoy it more than I do now, but uh, I haven't done it in eight years or so. And when I did it more consistently, I got into this thing called CrossFit. CrossFit was created, I think, in about year 2000 or so, and it was designed to... Um, try to create the fittest humans on earth. The, so their approach to working out was to try to do something that would actually create fit humans. And so they came out with an article in 2002, What is Fitness? And in that article, they lay out their 10 categories or qualities or characteristics that they would say, this is what it means to be fit. Things like speed and agility and balance and strength and flexibility. Middle-aged people, amen. I really go, no, we're not doing that one. I'll snap something if I stretch. Um, but those markers put together, these 10 things, were, 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 their workouts were designed to challenge you in each of those categories as you go through these different workouts that so you might be healthy in all of these different ways. Um, now, not everyone loves CrossFit. Some of you love CrossFit. Some of you have never heard of CrossFit. Some of you don't like it. There's lots of different influencers and you know, uh, uh, trainers that have different approaches to what it means to be fit. And I'm not going to get into the debate of what you should choose or not, but here's what we have in our text today. An absolutely undebatable list of what it means to be godly. Qualities, qualifications, uh, dispositions, conduct, that when you put them together are an example. It's not the example. It's not the exhaustive list, but it is a list, an example of what it means to be spiritually fit. I want you to see, though, that even more than that, it's not just a list of qualities that describe godliness. It's also a structure of how to build an environment that tend towards health and tend towards flourishing. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? We are going to read the entire chapter and then spend most of our time zoomed in on verses 5 through 9. This is God's holy and flawless perfect, faultless, life-transforming word. 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, our Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, Lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Feel free to grab a seat. Um, I want to credit Alistair Begg before I begin this. I listened to a sermon from him on this text Friday afternoon, just a few days ago, and I decided to restructure the entire sermon around the way he did. He had five different words that navigated through the text, and I'm going to use three of his words, and then there's two that were I thought were a little different, but I still want to give him credit for, for the structure. Um, starting here with the first word, this, this call to put elders in place in the local church is a necessity. It's a necessity. If we go to, to, to verse 1, we're reminded of the, the major theme, the macro theme, the meta theme that runs through the entire letter of Titus, that grace is supposed to produce godliness in God's people. This grace-infused, grace-produced, grace-empowered godliness. You see this in the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. And that theme comes out through the entire letter. In chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, and love and steadfast. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slave to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train up the young women. And he gives this example of what it looks like to be godly. And this godliness isn't just meant for the good of the, the church, but it's actually in witness to the world. As we get down to verse 5, they're to be self-controlled, pure, working on kindness to their own husbands. Listen to this phrase. That the word, and we're going to go through this slowly, so I'm just trying to give you an overview right now in a few weeks. That the word of God may not be reviled. That as the world watches and listens to the church speak, that we're not flawlessly living out our faith, but there's an authenticity to it, that there's not a deep hypocrisy and a disconnect between what we profess we believe and how we behave, or what we say and what we do. You go on further down in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And then Titus 3 that we'll probably just preach through every single Sunday during the election cycle next year. I might sort of not be joking. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. This verse, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That the church is meant to inhabit and have a sort of flavor that is countercultural in many ways. See it over in verse 8 of chapter 3. The saint is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's all over the letter. It's all over the Bible. The, the big question is how. how. How will these new Christians on the island of, of Crete cultivate a godliness that doesn't look just like their culture? I love, probably the funniest verse in this entire letter is down in chapter 1, verse 12. 12 into 13, I love this. One of the Cretans. You know, you ever called him a Cretan? Anyone call you a Cretan? Not to your face. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And I love Paul's response to that. It's like, that's not nice. He says, this testimony is true. He's writing to Cretans. I think it's just hilarious. I, when they get this, it's like, oh, you, he's talking about us. They're in an environment that wasn't godly. How are we going to pursue godliness? And one of the big answers that Paul gives, it's found in, in verse 5. It's a well-ordered church with the, the right roles and the right structures. You heard about deacons as we announced some, some new deacons hopefully being added. Today we're looking at the office that's known as, as elder. Verse five alludes to at least two things. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order. It alludes that there's something good that has started and there's something good that still needs to be completed. There's something unfinished that needs to get done. At some point, Paul, who wrote this letter, he wrote half of the New Testament. He was what's known as an apostle, someone commissioned by God to, to go and plant churches, and he wrote half the Bible. Um, he's there with Titus, who was his pastoral associate. Um, his pastoral associate said, go to the island of Crete, this island off of the shore of Greece, and it was a major trade hub. There was ports all over it, and so there's lots of people from the ancient world coming through this island, and so it was a very strategic place to go and plant the gospel. And so they go there and, and, it's, and talked about Jesus and told people about Jesus, and some people meet Jesus, and so this is the work that has begun. And at some point, Paul has to leave, and so he leaves Titus on the island to put what remained into order, to set it right, to set it straight. And what was left to be put in order he says, this is why I left you, that you might appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And what this is pointing to, I'm going to zoom out for a minute, give you a little bit like a biblical overview. But what this is doing is it's talking about something known as the Pauline uh, cycle of church planting. If you read through the book of Acts, this account of the early church, here's the basic structure that you're going to see. People meet Jesus. Jesus becomes beautiful to them. He becomes their savior. He becomes their Lord. He becomes their hero. He becomes their, they get blown away that, that God would send 
anyone to come and, and ransom sinners, that Jesus came and did everything that we could not do. He did it flawlessly and perfectly. He went to a cross where he died in the place of all that would trust him as he took the just judgment we deserve, went to a tomb, rose three days later, triumphantly declaring that the, the cross worked and forgiveness is real. And they got moved by that message. And so then they went out and they found other people that needed to hear it. They said, hey, I found, uh, I was starving and I found the bread of life. Hey, I was lost and I found the one that came to seek and save the lost. Hey, I was dead and I came and found the resurrection. So they would go out into towns and villages and places and they would talk about Jesus and people would come to faith and then they would get gathered into these little communities called churches. And then they would begin to, to learn the things of Jesus. They would begin to grow in godliness. And then out of these churches, what would happen is there would be individuals that were marked out as, as exemplary in their faith, and they would be appointed as elders. And then that church collectively would then say, okay, we got to go get the next town now. And so they would identify new people to be sent out as missionaries to go and start this cycle over again. If you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see that cycle, this Pauline cycle. In Crete, these people had not yet appointed elders. They had met Jesus. They began to gather together, but they weren't yet finished in the work that they had to do. And this may seem like a small thing, but it's massive. Leaders are an integral part of God's design for our flourishing. It's not that they weren't a church yet. My family, my wife and I, if we were not in the picture, my four kids would still be a family, but a significantly more vulnerable family without a mom and a dad. Leadership matters. It matters as coaches. It matters as business leaders. It, it, it matters as teachers. It matters as moms and dads. It matters in your peer groups. And here, the, these leaders of the church are identified. They're, they're called elders. John Maxwell, who's um, a leadership and organizational expert, says this. He says, everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, he might be overstating it a bit, um, but I think Paul left Titus in Crete because he knew that leadership matters in the local church. These new churches needed the right type of leaders in order to be healthy. Right? Remember, they're in Crete. You're lazy beasts. You're evil gluttons. You're, you're deceitful. There's all sorts of false teaching coming in that's upsetting whole families. So we need the right type of people to come in and try to like, how are you going to grow godly in a culture like that? And he says, one, just one of, not the only, but one of God's strategies is to appoint elders. Let me try to illustrate the power of leadership with a very negative example. Um, those are easier to find. Uh, January 13th, 2012, there's this massive cruise ship, had 4,000 people on it called the, the Costa Concordia. And it crashed into the, the, the rocks um, I believe it was outside of, of Italy. The captain, Francesco Chitino, uh, crashed the ship. And under investigation, they found out why. He, there was a woman on board who was one of the dancers, part of the entertainment crew. He had her come up to the bridge when he was sailing the ship or captain or whatever, and he wanted to impress her with his sailing prowess. And so he said, look how close I can get to the rocks without crashing. And he crashed because he's an idiot. Um, that's what happens. You try to impress a woman, you're going to crash your ship. <laughs> and the ship began to sink. <laughs> I mean, I actually should stop laughing here because stop laughing. People did die. Um, 
There's 4,000 people on board and the ship is sinking. And it actually gets worse because when they found the captain of the ship, he was actually in a lifeboat. And, and, un, and under investigation, here's what he said. He said, well, I didn't abandon the ship. What happened is because it was listing, it was starting to sink and it was kind of leaning and I was close to the railing and I fell off and I just happened to fall into a lifeboat. I wasn't abandoning everyone. Nobody believed him. He uh, was found guilty of manslaughter, causing a shipwreck, abandoning the ship with passengers on board, and he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Bad leaders really screw stuff up. Amen? You're all like, yes. But the right leaders in your homes, in your schools, in your workplaces, on your teams, and in your church, they can be a gift of God. And we see what's defined as right here in verses 6 through 9. So we have necessity. That's the first word. Let me give you the the next word, maturity. The word elder in verse 5 is the the Greek word for it is presbyteros. It's where you get the word presbyter. It was a term that originally meant someone who was relatively advanced in age. And it was a title that was given as a, a title of honor and recognition of maturity. The way it's being used here is not to be relatively advanced in age necessarily, but to be relatively advanced in your spiritual age. To be relatively mature as a Christian. And that's then described by these different attributes in verses 6 through 8. And before we walk through those attributes, and I'm not going to walk through them really specifically. I'll give you just a couple of things for each. Um, but we're going to stay a little bit more at a 35,000 foot level. But let me try to frame this list for you with an insight from D.A. Carson that I think is really, really helpful to apply this for all of us. D.A. Carson says this, the list is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there is nothing about superior IQ, charisma, powerful personality, or the like. The Christian minister is supposed to be gentle, not supposed to get drunk, and so forth. The list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Indeed, with only a couple of exceptions, all the qualifications listed here are elsewhere in the New Testament demanded of all Christians. What this means then is that the Christian pastor must exemplify in his own life the virtues and graces that are demanded of all the people of God. I think that insight is is massive in a lot of ways. One of the things it does is it shows us what all of us, if you're a Christ follower in this room, what to aspire to. All of us, as we walk through these attributes, I'd encourage you to not exclusively think these are the things that I should expect of my elders. You should expect this of your elders. But these are things that you long for in in yourselves. These are things that you look for in a potential spouse. These are things that you could embody if you were in a position of authority in a workplace. These are the things that you could strive for if you are a teacher or or you are a, a coach, if you are a leader of any sort. These are the sort of qualities that will allow you to do that for people's good and not their demise. Something else Carson's Insight does, it spells out one of the primary ways in which elders are meant to function, which is as pace setters. They're like the, they're like the, the, the car that, that, that sets the, the, the pace on the road, that, that, that allows everyone to draft behind. They're the ones that are supposed to, to go ahead and say, this is what it can look like. Redeemer, let me give you the elder job description. The key win, if you look at our job description, if you're gonna be an elder in this church, here's the key win. To shepherd Redeemer Church like Jesus would shepherd Redeemer Church. I love that. 
And then we go into four different kind of broad categories of what it means for us to do that. Elders care for the church, primarily by nurturing them in the gospel in all kinds of circumstances. Elders feed the church, primarily by treasuring God's word and teaching God's word to others. Elders protect the church, primarily from false doctrine, apathy, and sin. And elders lead the church primarily by being pace setters and godly examples. They care, and they feed, and they protect, and they lead, primarily by being examples. We don't want to just be talking heads that go say, go do this when we don't. We want to say, we want you to be able to look at the life of the elders in this church and say, I can pattern my life, at least in part, after what I see. That gives me a real-life version of what it means to follow Christ. Let me highlight and honor our two newest elders, um, Rob Corley and Fred Benjamin. Both just incredibly godly men, married to incredibly godly and gifted wives. Rob Corley, he, uh, they've both been around for about five years. I remember that Rob, I think by the second Sunday that he was part of our church, I love Rob, always comes into the service. He's got this wonderful smile. He's got this countenance of Christ. You know, when you're with somebody who's been with Jesus, there's just a reflection. And he seems so curious and interested about the people. So he always walks in, he's always got his Bible under his arm. Love it. Got his Bible, he's got his name. And I love to look at people's Bibles and you see how tattered is it. Oh, his is well read. And he said he just loves to record notes and he loves to record prayers. And then one of the things Rob does is after the service, I think he did this probably his second Sunday here. Him and Stephanie are such incredible hosts. They, they have such a gift of hospitality that they would just invite. If you were new in this church, if you came, they would come find you and they would invite you to their house. You were eating lunch with them that afternoon. You came Sunday, you're eating casserole Sunday afternoon. Sounds like church to me. Just incredible. They just got back from a month in Cambodia where they are heavily invested in a variety of ministries there, and they came back so joyful. Oh, if you could see the things he does to serve his family. If you could see the way he loves and prays for you with such joy and kindness. He is so far my superior in so many ways, and yet he's been so gracious and humble. And Fred, Fred Benjamin and Debbie, they... It's a, a, a lovely family. They, they've opened their home. They've hosted for our church. I mean, imagine having like, hey, I'm going to have some people over my house. Hey, do you mind if like a few hundred come? And they're like, yeah, sure. We'll go over there. We've done baptism. We've done parties, and we've just celebrated. They'll host nights for missionaries when they come to be able to cast a vision for what they're doing. They actually built, you know, God has, he gave them some resources, and so they wanted to steward those resources, so they built above their garage this beautiful apartment for when missionaries come back so they have a place to go. They are so open-hearted with their lives. They just constantly, Fred is constantly meeting with men in this church. He's constantly, particularly young guys, like if, if you want someone to meet with, Fred is incredible. He will meet with you. He will love you. He will care for you. Again, so far, so far superior, so much life experience, so much time with the Lord, and yet it's been so gracious and humble. Rob and Fred, something interesting is that they actually embody what this text says because I want you to appoint elders in every town. And the language there is I want you to go into a place and you're going to see people that have a track record of doing these things and then we're going to officially recognize them. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have processes. We do. It doesn't mean you don't have a leadership development pipeline. We do. But Rob and Fred, the thing that makes you an elder is you were already an elder in function before you ever were an elder in name. And that's what they were doing. What's being said here is elder is an official title given to someone who is already faithfully loving the church as a pace setter and public example of godliness. 
There's a maturity. Now, how's that flush out? We'll get into some of the words now. Uh, let me give you the catch-all word. They're above reproach. Above reproach. We see this attribute or quality. It's listed twice, both in verse 6 and verse 7. Um, the word can mean blameless, um, free from accusation. Like there's no charge that you think you can bring against this person. Um, what it does not mean is perfection. Praise God, it doesn't mean perfection. If it meant perfection, how many elders could we ever have in this church? Be zero or Jesus, right? I mean, it's, at the end of the day, that's what you got. But it means like you would be surprised. What it means to be above reproach means if something came out about an elder in good standing, you'd be shocked to hear it. If there's some like habitual, you know, ongoing chronic sin, if you found out they were a sinner, you'd be like, of course. But you would be shocked if there was something scandalous that came out. That's what it means to be above reproach. And this is actually one of the reasons that when we install elders and deacons, but one of the reasons when we install elders, we come to you as a church and say, we're putting these men forward to be elders. We want you to take a month and, and affirm that or refute it. Because you can't self-identify, I'm above reproach. This is something the community has to look in and identify. And so this junk drawer term over all things, they are above reproach. And I think that can work out from the text like this in two, two ways primarily. And they're very similar to actually what we want with our gospel community group leaders, our leaders of these groups of people from like 10 to 40 people that meet in homes throughout the week and study the Bible and love Jesus and encourage one another, is what we're looking for in GC leaders is that there are two things primarily. They're relationally warm and they're spiritually warm. And we really see both of those things in this text. If we use the language of this text from verse 6, we would say they are above reproach in their relationships. And then verses 7 and 8, they are above reproach in their spiritual life and their conduct and their character. And I, like I said, I'm going to go through this somewhat quickly. I would, this is a wonderful list. Like the, the 10 foundations of CrossFit that say you're fit. This is a good list for you to go and to lay on your life and to say, I want to aspire to this and praise God where you're already doing it. All right. Above reproach in our relationships in verse six, they are the husband of one wife. Now, churches do all sorts of stuff with this. I would suggest to you this does not, it's not meant to be wooden. The husband of one wife doesn't mean you have to be married. Paul wasn't married. The husband of one wife doesn't mean that, that let's say you were serving as an elder and then you were widowed, sadly. It doesn't mean you have to step down as an elder. Husband of one wife literally means you're a one-woman man. It means that you are sexually pure and you are appropriate in your dealings with people of the opposite sex. It means you are controlled, and it means that if you are married, that you cherish your bride in such a way that she feels like she's the only one. And then it goes on, and this is, again, a, a one that causes a lot of angst in those that aspire to elder or are elders. It probably would give angst to any parent in the room that's trying to use this list as a, as a good target. And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What this means is not that they are believers, not that they are followers of Christ. It can also mean faithful. We don't have the prerogative to make our kids Christians or not. But what it does mean is that you have structured your home in such a way that they know the things of God while they're in your home that you're trying to talk to them about Jesus, you're trying to introduce them to the gospel, you're opening up the word of God, you're praying with them. The, the fruit that God brings of salvation is not ours to do, but that you have actually made the attempt towards raising them in a home that knows Jesus and not open to, and I, the reason I believe that it's not about being saved, but it's actually just about being respectful 
is the relationship to the next phrase, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Most of the time. Could I, could I put that phrase in there? Most of the time, not perfectly. Not perfectly. See, what you want to do is you're raising your kids is you want to look at it not just like a snapshot from last Thursday afternoon. That could be, you could look like your children should be taken away from like. Like you are, or your kids are terrible. But if you looked at a a long-form feature film, what's the pattern? What's the trends? What's the the tendencies that they have? Does it seem like there's a genuine desire to be respectful? So you're above reproach in our relationships. And it makes sense because the Bible talks about the church as the household of God. So how would you ever get the right to lead the household of God if you're not leading and managing your own household well? Then he goes on, you're above reproach in your conduct and your Christian character. And what we have here are five do nots and six do's. Again, I'm going to go through this quickly. Um, They're not arrogant. Good leaders, they're not self-willed. They're not stubborn. It doesn't mean they're pushovers, but but, but there's not a pompousness to them. They don't always think they're right. In fact, they probably gladly and joyfully confess that they know they're not right all the time and they seek counsel from others. They're not quick-tempered. They're measured. They're controlled. They're slow to anger. So be the, 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 the trait of being in intense situations and having a less anxious presence. You turn the temperature of the room down, not up. They're not a drunkard. They're free from controlling addictions. There's a sober-mindedness to them. And why I would suggest to you, again, we don't want to be so wooden with the text. What we want to be is literal, but not literalistic. We want to be literal with the text because we could say this. I think it literally means not given to much wine. So can you go do keg stands? Like, I mean, it's not wine. Or like, don't get drunk on wine, so can you go get bonzo on edibles? No. Just means you are nothing. I thought that was funny. (laughs) Maybe it didn't make sense. Bonzo on edibles, I don't know. You don't get stoned like Bellingham stoned, okay? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for giving me the courtesy laugh. Um, they're not violent. That's a really important one, particularly, I mean, as we think in recent years, they're not bullies. Oh, some of you have been so bullied in church. You had some guy stand behind a pulpit and just throw sticks and stones at you. Oh, it doesn't mean you can never be firm. It doesn't mean you can never be direct. But, oh, we must never be fighters with our our words or with our fists. That We're not going to environments to bully people and dominate them. They're not greedy. They're not a lover of money. They're upright in their financial dealings. Their hearts are not corrupted by greed. So these five do-nots and six do's. Hospitable. Their heart and their home are open to others. They're not distant from their people. They're amongst. They're a lover of good. I I like that that the framework there is not that they just do good, but they actually desire it. They love it. They don't just go through the motions because that's not what they have to do to be able to keep their job or keep their role, but it's actually what they long for. They're self-controlled. They're free from controlling passions and lusts. They're upright. 
They live according to God's standards, as best as they're able as flawed men in the power of the Spirit under the grace of Jesus. They're holy. They're set apart for God and pleasing to him. And they're disciplined. They're, their life is well-ordered and under control. They return emails. <laughs> Are you laughing because you had a pastor not return an email? <laughs> I tell you, it's one of my biggest pet peeves. Like, and I'm not saying I never do it, so if I do it, graciously call me out, please. It drives me nuts. I look at some of my pastor friends and I adore them, but I'm like, you would get fired in any other environment. Return an email. How can you manage the church if you can't manage your, your inbox and your count? That got dark, sorry. Don't, don't. <laughs> but I mean it. All right, that's dark, nice, tender. Ah, all right, I'm going to move on. Um, think of how all this fits together with the meta theme of Titus, this grace-produced godliness. Elders are necessary in part to give a flesh and blood, real-world, local church close enough that you can see an example of what godliness looks like. You can point to your kids and say, follow that guy. You can point to your daughter and say, that's, that's, that's a good example of someone that loves Christ. That you in your own life can, can, can know that it's possible to pursue godliness. Now, they are certainly not the only example in the church of godliness. Thanks be to God. And, and I really do. It's funny. This church, we've been around. We planted this church in 2007, and I keep waiting for the shoe to drop. I keep waiting for there to just be some massive nonsense in this church, and it just hasn't happened. And it's because of God's grace in you. I could almost close my eyes and point to someone in this room and look at my kids and say, if you turn out like them, you've done good. This church is loaded with godly people, but elders amongst them are supposed to be that, to be pace setters and to be godly examples. I love how Brian Chapel says this. He goes, our lives are incarnational lifelines of the gospel to those drowning in sinful despair. By our goodness, we demonstrate that the gospel has real power and we provide hope that change is possible, that tomorrow does not have to be like yesterday. Just saying that you can look at Rob and you can look at Fred and you can look at Paul and say, godliness is actually possible. And it can encourage us. Years ago, a dear member, they've since moved to another state, but he reached out to me and said, Rob, we're all very, very grateful that you tell us how much of an idiot you are all the time. Which I, I am and I do. And, you know, that you confess your sin and your struggle, but he goes, every now and then, could you tell us like a success? <laughs> He's like, I need to know as like a dad... And as a husband, that there's hope. Not just forgiveness. Oh, praise God for it. But there's actually hope to grow. He was rightly asking for what Chapel is saying. Elders are meant to be godly examples, pace setters. Not perfect, but genuine examples of grace-produced godliness. All right, necessity, maturity. I know we're only on the third word. I'm going to move faster through, not this one, but the following two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Who am I kidding? I'll be slow on this one and the last one. The fourth one, I will go fast. All right, authority. Authority. Everyone's favorite word, authority. Um, I get that word from verse 7 where it says overseer. So in verse 5, it used the word elder, presbyteros. In verse 7, it uses the word overseer. It's the word episcopoi, uh, where we get episcopalian. And this word, the word elder meant a spiritual maturity. The term overseer embodies what's known as spiritual authority. Now, I want you to hear this is meant for the good of the church, for the flourishing of the church, but if we're honest, it really goes against the grain of our culture 
and many of our own desires to be under authority. And who really wants that? Um, according to a recent survey, so 40 years ago, I think it was, let's see, 65% of Americans had confidence in organized religion. Today, it's 39%. And no doubt, church leaders and pastors, and that's why these qualifications matter, have given ample reasons for people to not trust anything that feels organized. You know, many of you are well aware of the public church implosion that happened down in the Seattle area in Mars Hill Church. Many of you were part of that church at points or were impacted through the ministry of that church. And thank God that he draws straight lines with crooked sticks. He does good things with broken people. But what happened is just mind-boggling. There's a podcast series that the Gospel Coalition, or not, uh, that Christianity Today released a couple years ago called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And if you listen to it, it's, it's sad. It's true. And a lot of people did. I think it was like in the top five or top 10 downloaded podcasts, not amongst like Christian podcasts, but all podcasts hosted on Apple. Because it resonated with so many people that have seen authority used in such poor ways. Some of the things were just down, downright wicked. In recent years, like if you, um, you look at the hashtag, hashtag church hurt, Go on Instagram, you'll find over 25,000 posts with that hashtag. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hurt. And I know there's a lot of hurt in this room. There's a lot of misuse of authority. There's a lot of misuse of a, of a pulpit, a platform. There's a lot of misuse of a pastoral visitation. But it's not just church authority that we don't like. We often don't like any authority. We don't want our parents to tell us what to do. We don't want coaches to tell us what to do. We don't want bosses to tell us what to do. We don't want teachers to tell us what to do. And again, so often it's because there's poor expressions, but there is something in us that just doesn't want to be told what to do. We don't want God's word to tell us what to do. And so we buck underneath this idea of having an, an overseer. We don't naturally want it. But here's the big question. Will throwing off authority get us to where we want to go? Like this picture of godliness, if we say, no, 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 nobody can speak into my life. No one gets the right to do that. No one gets to call me out. No one gets to hold me to something. Well, we naturally drift into this type of godliness. One of the best examples of, of this tendency to not want authority, anything to, to tie us down, I heard from another pastor, and he said, you know, just think of like a, a kite. When you're flying a kite, you go out down to Zuanich, you, 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 ha you attach the string to the kite, and you hold it tight, and you begin to let it out, and the wind comes, and it kind of fills the, the sail of the kite, and it begins to go up into the sky, and it gets higher and higher, and you have a long string. Boy, it is, it is way up there. And then the kite thinks to himself, because this kite can think, the kite thinks to himself, and, and, and it's like looking around at the birds. And Man, those birds are getting to go everywhere. They don't have to stay in this one spot connected to this thing on the ground. You know, I, I wish I was like that. If I could only get rid of the string tethering me, then I'd finally be free. I'd be able to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And so the kite, you know, shimmies itself loose from the, the string. And as any of you know, when the string comes loose, the kite doesn't soar, it crashes. The wind catches it, and it might lift for a while, but it is going to flip and fly and eventually crash on the ground. See, authority works like that. Authority in one way keeps us tethered to that which is good so we can actually fly. What makes that illustration even more sobering to me is the person that I heard it from ended up throwing off the authority of God's word, cheating on his wife and wrecking his life. 
Let me give you this from Trevin Wax. Uh, but the answer to bad authority is not no authority, but good authority. We mustn't respond to abuse with abandonment. Good authority properly exercised is a gift to God's people. The Bible thinks that. King David thinks that. King David was king over God's people for 40 years, a time of great prosperity. In 2 Samuel, his parting words in chapter 23 says this, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. A good leader brings life. Good mom, a good dad, a good husband, a good teacher, a godly coach. Jonathan Lehman, in an article, The Blessing of, in quotes, good authority, says this good authority strengthens and grows, it authors and creates. It's the teacher teaching, the coach coaching, the mother mothering. It's the rules for a game, the lines on a road, a covenant for lovers, the lessons for a child, the chance to grow and expand and eventually take domain ourselves. One of history's greatest secrets hidden by the blindfold that Satan and sin places over our eyes is that God means his authority to grow and expand us, not to shrink and snuff us out. One of the insights that blew me away when I read that, and I'd never thought of it before, and perhaps all of you have thought of it, is that author and authority are related words. To be an authority means to author something in the lives of others. And good authors... They author flourishing in the lives of those that God has entrusted to their care, to cultivate and create. Elders or overseers are meant, and this is how I want us to think about it in our church, and this is what I hope you can expect and you experience. Elders, overseers, pastors, we can use those terms synonymously, are meant to participate with God in authoring Christ in your life. Our job is to help form Christ in you. So with that... Let me give a plug for membership. Um, it might feel like a weird turn, but it's actually a really applicable one. Um, overseas, oversee. The question is, who do they oversee? Pastors, pastor, but who do they pastor? Elders, eld, but who are they elders to? One of the things membership does is it's, it's the DTR of the relationship. It's the define the, the DTR of the relationship. It's the DTR, which is define the relationship. It says, yes, this is my church, and yes, I want to be a part of this community, and yes, I want you to give it. Here's what you can do. I want you to give an account to God for my soul. As Hebrews 13 says that pastors are meant to do. And I love every single person that ever comes in this room. You got to know that. I, I adore you. And there's people that have been here for years and years and years but I'm not sure I'm your pastor. I'm not positive. Some of the other elders, they're not sure. Being here is one thing, but saying like, I'm self-selecting and say, yes, I want this to be my church. And the reason I, I'm saying it to you like this is I want to recognize that some of you come with hashtag church hurt from abusive elders and pastors. And I know it is a vulnerable thing to place yourself in an environment and say, I want that. I want you to take responsibility for me in an appropriate way for me. So I just want to invite you, if this is not something you've explored or looked at, we would love to get you more information. Not to push something. It's not to have a number. It's not so we can check a box. It's so at the end of the day, I know before God who I'm supposed to answer for. All right, we got three words down, and it's 1210. 
band went long, um, especially that piano player. All right. Necessity, maturity, authority. I'm going to do this one super fast, I promise. Plurality. Plurality. See, one of the things that can greatly temper the anxiety that can come around authority is plurality. What you see here is not appoint an elder, it's appoint elders. See, plurality does a number of things. One of the things it does is it's a safeguard against the consolidation of power by one in, any one individual in the local church. Uh, the reality is if you look at our bylaws, I can be fired. I can be fired by Rob and Fred and Paul. You know, they, they have the authority to fire me. I may have been part of planting this church along with a team of other people, but I am not the owner of this church. No one is. We are stewards. This is King Jesus' church. And so one of the things that plurality does is it helps to avoid a cult of personality. It's one of the reasons we like to have different preachers. It's why we like to have different people leading prayers. It's like we want diversity of gifts and expressions and all sorts of things because we want to avoid some of the trappings that come when things get isolated on any one individual other than who it should be focused on, which is who? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Necessity. Maturity. There's a lot more I could say on plurality, but we'll just do that. Necessity, maturity, authority, plurality. And I like this last one a lot. Textual tenacity. That's verse nine. We shift from these character qualifications above reproach in their home, above reproach in their conduct, and now we get into this last one that they hold fast to the word of God. That they cling to it. Martin Luther was a... uh, what's known as a, a, a catalyzed, what's known as the, the Reformation. He was trying to reform the church and call it back to something. He's a hero to many because of how he clung to the Bible. He was a Catholic monk um, who began to question some of the official teachings of the church. He was studying his Bible. He's looking at his Bible. He's looking at the teachings, and he says, something's not lining up here. And so he begins to write uh, a series of essays and little booklets, and this was after Gutenberg, and so he had a printing press, and so his stuff went viral. And so they, they printed the stuff, and it began to distribute these questions around the Catholic Church's official positions around a number of things, mostly around the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He began to challenge this, and people began to take notice. And because he went viral and it spread, the Pope heard about it, the Emperor heard about it, everybody heard about it. And so I think it came to a head in like 1521, and he was brought into this this, um, trial, basically. He came into a room with the most powerful people that exist. And in this room was a table, and it was all these things that he wrote was on the table. And they said to him, they said, "Um, is this yours? And he said, yes. And so then they asked him another question. They said, are you willing to recant, to say you were wrong? And if you don't recant, then we will burn you alive. He said, could I have a day to think about it? (laughs) He did legitimately. He said, could I have a day? Um, So he went and he prayed and... And he wrote his response, and I won't read the whole thing, but it is a stunning, stunning response. Imagine, he goes back into this room in front of these powerful people, and he says this, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is clear that they have fallen into error and even into inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. 
For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience and his biblically informed conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. That's what you should be able to expect from the elders in your church. That they cling to this book no matter what it costs them. No matter when the culture shifts and says what you're saying is offensive and bigoted and, and terrible and full of hate. See, these, where else will we go? These are the words of life. No matter if it's unpopular, no matter if it's uncomfortable, you don't have to hold it with a hammer, but boy, you better hold it. You hold on to it for dear life. That's what he's saying, that these are people that are supposed to cling to the word of God. They, 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 they have this firm grasp on this trustworthy word is taught so that they can do these two things, that they can instruct and sound doctrine. That word sound means healthy and to rebuke those who contradict. And I really will try to wrap this up quickly. I'm going to stick with Luther for a second more because the reason he found himself on trial is actually a very pastoral one. He was a pastor of a local church. He cared deeply about the people of his church and he cared deeply about the gospel of Jesus. And what the Catholic Church was doing at this time, and I'm not trying to throw rocks at anybody, I'm just giving you some of the history of it. What the Catholic Church was doing at this time is they were going around to villages and towns and they were selling what's called indulgences. An indulgence was a way of basically through good deeds or merit or money to reduce your time or the time of someone you love in what was known as purgatory, which is not in the Bible, but this place that you go after you die, before you go to heaven, a place of uh, purification and punishment. And so they would go around and it's the, the way many of the cathedrals that if you visited in Europe, the way they got built is they went to these places and they told people, if you put some money in the box, you're going to knock like 50 years off your sentence. And they went from place to place to places and it broke Luther's heart because he was a pastor. And these impoverished people in his church were being bilked out of their last dollars, sort of like a TV evangelist. And he would not stand for it because they were both harming his people and they were jeopardizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This full story of how Jesus can say, it is finished, everything necessary for you to be in right standing with God, I have done in your place. No, you do not fulfill the qualifications. No, you are not blameless before God, but I have been blameless for you and for any that would trust in me and then go to a cross where he takes the wrath and the judgment we deserve to go to a tomb and rise and say, it worked. And what they were doing is saying, no, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. And he said, no, I will not have it. The same dynamic is actually happening in this text. A godly elder that clings to the word does so in order to teach it and rebuke those who contradict it. The, the word instruct here, it actually means to encourage or console. It doesn't primarily mean to teach in harshness. And I know so many of you have been talked to so harsh, and I'm sure I've done it. Paul is saying an elder is gentle and tender with the church and fierce and tough with anyone who wants to hurt the church or distort the gospel. Like Luther, we see the primary place of both encouraging and rebuking in verse 10, this, especially of the circumcision party. So they're coming in and they are messing stuff up. They are messing up homes. They are putting burdens on people. The circumcision party would have been a group of, of Jewish leaders that came into the church and said, Jesus is fine, but you also need to get circumcised. You need to follow the rituals that, that we are handing down in order for you to be accepted before God. 
And Paul's saying, Titus, you got, you got to appoint people that are willing to take the shots. You got to appoint people that are willing to say, that is not okay, that is not right. And to rebuke them, not so they're shamed, but so as this text says, they, they actually wake up and they come to truth. They were saying your godliness is the ground of your acceptance. But God, the elders will have none of that because the gospel is just too good to say that it has anything to do with us to be right with God. Here's what Paul, the author of this letter, envisions. Godly men using their authority to make sure nothing and no one messes with the gospel or God's people. To consistently and tenderly teach and ferociously and tenaciously defend the gospel. His pace setters as examples. It's examples of what happens when the gospel gets a hold and Jesus comes alive and you say, oh, I want to live for him. And as proclaimers that make sure that no one in the church thinks they have to follow a godly example to be right with God. They just have to believe in Christ. I'll truly end with this quote from Brian Chappell. I love how Brian Chappell brings this together. He says this, our lives should express the power of the gospel, but our lips should express the hope of the gospel. The foundation of this hope is that God loves us not because of our goodness, but because of his. Not because of our work, but because of our Savior's. Though the church's leaders live so as to give others the hope that changed lives are possible, they never point to their actions as the basis of God's acceptance. I praise God that you have elders here that believe that. I pray that we'd be a room of people that become like that and, and celebrate where you already are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to just thank you for the men that have served as elders in this church. It's, Every single one of them, I can see reflected genuinely from this text, not perfectly, and we thank you that we were never meant to be perfect until Christ, you come back. But I thank you for Greg, and I thank you for Claude, and I thank you for Ethan, and I thank you for Jeff, and I thank you for Pete. God, I thank you for Paul, I thank you for Rob, I thank you for Fred. I thank you for a church that models this text so well that we could almost throw a dart at a board of names from people in this church and we would say, oh, that is a beautiful example of what a, a genuine example. Not a perfect example, but a genuine example of what it looks like to live for Christ. Oh, would you do more of it? I thank you right now that I pray at least you're stirring the hearts of some of the men in this room that they would aspire to this office. God, I pray that you would ins inspire and stir the hearts of the men and women in this room as they, they, they aspire to godly leadership in whatever spheres you've placed them in. That they would make things better where they go and people would look more like Jesus. And above all things, God, would you keep the gospel loud as we go through a book that focuses a lot on what we do. Make what Jesus has done a lot louder. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen.